you listen to Jesus? Why should you listen to him? Why should you obey him? Lots of people don't want to listen to Jesus. Uh, I had a, a pretty interesting week trying to connect with my MSPs uh, uh, to chat with them about the same-sex marriage bill this past week. Uh, I rang up one of my... Uh, I discovered I have like seven or eight MSPs. Do you know that? It's, I, I thought I'd have to contact one. There's about seven or eight of them. Anyway, I contacted one of them, called the office, said I wanted to chat to, to them. And, uh, and when they said, what was it about? I mentioned the bill. And uh, the secretary said, well... Um, he hasn't made his mind up about this yet, so he doesn't want to talk to anybody about it. <laughs> I think it's a pretty good job. I'm going to think I'm going to run to be an MSP. You, it's a good salary. You don't have to talk to anyone if you haven't made your mind up. It's fantastic. So then I went to visit uh, my constituent MSP, and uh, I sat down. As soon as I said what it was about, he said, Oh, Mr. Reese, he said, We've, uh, I've already made my mind up about this. It's pointless talking about it. Well... There we go. The whole notion that Scotland today should pay any attention to the Bible and the teachings of Jesus is considered to be foolish and irrelevant. Uh, the attitude is very much, well, that's all very well for you. You just keep quiet about it. Just don't expect me to pay any attention to it. That's, that's pretty much the view that's out there right now. And at one level, of course, we shouldn't be surprised that a secular Scotland uh, doesn't want to listen to Jesus. I think the challenge is, is, is a greater challenge when it comes to the church. When we who say that we are Christians, will we listen to what Jesus has to say? We're quite happy, of course, uh, to uh, agree with Jesus when it, it, it fits the way we think and the way we want to act. But what happens when Jesus speaks about an area which is quite personal, which affects us, and we're, we're really quite uncomfortable that Jesus should speak about it in such a direct manner. In those moments, will we listen to Jesus? Will we do what he says? Well, please open your Bibles to uh, Matthew's Gospel. And uh, if you're using one of the church Bibles, you can turn to page 969. And we are looking at this most famous sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just do a quick recap with you. The first 12 verses, uh, Jesus uh, is describing what it means to be a Christian disciple. And he says, actually, it, it, what marks a Christian disciple is certain inner attitudes of heart. Those who are meek, those who are peacemakers those who uh, uh, mourn over their sin. There are certain inner attitudes of heart. And then in verses 13 to um, 16, he points out that those who have those inner attitudes of heart, those Christian disciples, will have an influence on the outside world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. As Christian disciples, we... We always need to be reminded of who we are to encourage us to live out that reality. And, and, and just implicitly as Jesus opens up this sermon, he shares a couple of significant things that are true of every Christian disciple. The first thing he says is that, that disciples are children of God. 
Do you see that in 5 verse 9? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Or, or chapter 5 and verse 16. Um, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Just by the by, implicitly, Jesus teaches his disciples, you are, you are beloved children of God. And as we live out the family likeness of being God's loved sons and daughters, we show people around us just little glimpses of our heavenly Father. And so we draw others who are not in the kingdom into praise and worship of God. That's what 5 verse 16 says. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. But not only are we children of God, but, but Jesus teaches in these verses that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, look at 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we're reminded in verse 12 that um, as we live with Jesus as our king and get insulted for that, that great is your reward in heaven. So as we live out the characteristics of being citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we show glimpses of the glory and the goodness of our King Jesus that cause other people to praise our Father in heaven and be drawn into his kingdom. The truth is that some will persecute, but others will end up praising our Father in heaven. So these are, this is where we've got to in the Sermon on the Mount. But here's, I guess, the next question that follows up from that is, well, how are we to live as children of God, as citizens of heaven? How are we supposed to live? And the answer, in summary, for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is that we are to live righteous lives. The Christian disciple is is called to live a righteous life. And that's what the rest of the sermon is about. Jesus is teaching us what a life of repentance and righteousness really looks like. That's what we've got here. And it's going to get uncomfortable. Jesus is going to speak about some personal areas in our lives that we'd rather that he didn't speak about. He's going to talk about uh, topics like anger and murder. He's going to talk about lust, about adultery. He's going to talk about the painful topic of divorce. Uh, He's going to talk about how we use our speech, how we misuse God's name. He's going, to, he's going to get in some very practical areas about how we view our possessions and, and stress and anxiety and worry. And, and before we get there, Jesus gives a sort of introduction in chapter 5 and verses uh, 17 to 20. And I think this sets up really the, why we should listen to Jesus. This is an important general introduction that we've got to get before we get into all this detail about righteous living. So let's just take the time to read it, uh, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter 
not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's just take the time to ask his help to understand these words. Father, we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus who revealed your glory in his life, who fulfilled all the scriptures. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand these words and that we may respond by repentance and faith and that you would shape us to be people of righteousness in this city. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, these verses kind of divide into two sections, really, two parts. In verses uh, 17 to 18, we have uh, Christ and the law. And in verses 19 to 20, we have the Christian and the law. See, what is the relationship now of uh, Jesus Christ to the law and the prophets? And then what are we as Christians supposed to do with uh, the law and the prophets? That's really what, what this section is about. So what was Jesus' attitude to the Old Testament scriptures? Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you've read through them, you will know that uh, the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes, often criticized Jesus because they felt he played fast and loose with the uh, Old Testament laws and their traditions of how to obey them. Jesus seemed to enjoy uh, going to parties and hanging out with people they considered very sinful people. He hanged around with the wrong sort of people. Jesus dared to do things that they thought was totally wrong. Uh, they, they saw him healing on the Sabbath, which they were, rather than being amazed at, they were appalled at that Jesus was doing work on the Sabbath. You can't do that, Jesus. They saw his disciples kind of, you know, not obeying the, the fasting rules that they had developed to try and... Um, understand the Old Testament. The disciples didn't seem to be about the same sort of hand-washing, cleanliness rules. And so Jesus was, was, was sort of looked as a, as, a, as, as a bit of a dodgy teacher. What, what, what was he doing? And, and, and also, he didn't really sort of fit into their school. They had ways that you got trained up to be official religious teachers, and Jesus had never followed that route. Uh, if you'd followed their route, then you would be able to authoritatively quote all the other rabbis and, 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 and tell people to do things because rabbi said this and rabbi said that and rabbi said... But Jesus didn't speak with the authority of the rabbis. He spoke with his own authority. 
We're going to see it as we read through this Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say to you. What incredible authority. So what was his attitude to the Old Testament law? Is Jesus scrubbing it? Is he replacing it? Is he ignoring it? Is he lax to it? What is his position? Well, this is something that Jesus clearly had picked up on. And so he answers in a very strong way. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now this, this is a, this is a stunning statement. Now when Jesus speaks of the law, I guess in our minds we hear the word law and we just think about rules. You know, the highway code or whatever. We think about rules and commands. But the Jewish hearers of their day knew that Jesus was speaking about the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. They knew, and, and of course, the, the, while they do contain laws and commands, they also contain a lot of narrative, a lot of history, uh, poetry, songs, and lots of promises of what God was going to do. Lots of statements of revelation about who God was. And the prophets, well, they were the inspired men who taught the, the law into the different contexts of Israel down through their history, from Elijah onwards. And so what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about the law and the prophets is he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, that big first part of our Bible. That's what he's referring to. And what Jesus says about all of that is that um, he hadn't come to uh, chop it out of our Bibles. He hadn't come to say you don't need to bother with that anymore. He had come to fulfill it. Everything about the, the law and the prophets ultimately have their purpose and their point in Jesus. He'd come to complete the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament is, in a sense, to use J.C. Ryle's quote, the Old Testament is the gospel in a bud, and the New Testament is the gospel in full flower. Look at that lovely magnolia. It's coming. Summer's coming. We're going to see magnolias on the tree. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. The Old Testament is the gospel in a bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. This is how Jesus understood the scriptures. He had a very high view of the scriptures. Jesus, uh, we've already seen that as he dealt with devil uh, who was tempting him in the wilderness, the first thing he quotes to deal with him, he just quotes scripture. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Why do we as Christians take the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures seriously? Well, because Jesus says that they are the very words of God. And that they all point to him. And, and Jesus says that every detail of the Old Testament scriptures has lasting significance in this world. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 18. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In the Hebrew text, just one stroke of a pen can completely change the meaning of a word. 
uh, in the same way that a little stroke of pen will turn an F into a P and a P into an R. And words with those different character sounds are quite different, aren't they? Just one little stroke of the pen can completely change the meaning of a, of a, of a, of a word. And Jesus says that until everything promised and spoken of in the Old Testament is accomplished, they have lasting authority. And they have lasting authority because they point to him who fulfills all of it. It is an amazing statement. This is, this is how we view the Bible. The, uh, if you put the next one on, Kevin. The Old Testament is Jesus' promise. The New Testament tells us that Jesus has come. The Old Testament is the reality. And uh, uh, the, the Old Testament is the shadow to the, the New Testament reality of Jesus. And, and Matthew's been pointing this out all along in his gospel, hasn't he? From the very start, let's go back to chapter 1. What does he do? He gives us this huge genealogy. He wants us to see that Jesus comes in continuity and in fulfillment of all the promises God made to David and to Abraham. So chapter 1, verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. And then over and over again, he points out how the life of Jesus fulfilled the, the Old Testament prophecies. So look at uh, chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, and he quotes from Isaiah, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, look at chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, uh, where the Messiah would be born was, was uh, prophesied. And Jesus was born in that very same place of Bethlehem. 2, verse 5, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Or chapter 2, verse uh, 14 and 15, the fact that uh, Joseph and Mary take Jesus down to Egypt. And then when the threat of uh, murder is gone, they bring him back. Apparently that just fulfills scripture. So look at 2 verse 14. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I call my son. Now I think why this is particularly fascinating is that actually in this context, the, the Hosea is really talking about Israel being in Egypt and Israel coming out of Egypt. But Matthew sees it's not just that there were predictive promises of Jesus that came true, like where he was born and what name he would, that is unusual birth, a virgin birth. But actually, the whole shape of Israel's history, in some way, was a picture preparing us for Christ. So just as Israel went down to Egypt and then came out of Egypt, Jesus went to Egypt and came out of Egypt. In the way that the Israelites wandered for 40 years in the wilderness and faced many temptations where they succumbed and failed, Jesus, in chapter 4, spends 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And yet he does not succumb to temptation. Uh, he does not fall. He, he stands righteous in every single area of temptation. And near the end of uh, his life, Moses declared that God would bring another prophet like him 
So in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I commanded him. So just as we read of Moses going up to Mount Sinai and speaking the Ten Commandments and the, and the Word of God to the people that would be the basis of their life together, what do we see in chapter 5? We see Jesus going up to a mountain. And he declares what are the blessings of this new covenant. And he gives the teaching of what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven. Here is the prophet just like Moses. And we could go on and on uh, at every single point at which you look at the, at the history and the teaching of the Old Testament. You can find ways that it ultimately points to, signifies, and relates to, and, and, and focuses in like a huge signpost to say, uh, Jesus is coming. And the New Testament is pointing out to us in all these categories of saying, look, Jesus does perfectly fulfill all these categories. And so... Yes, we do have the Old Testament in our Bibles because Jesus says it continues to have significance until the end of this age because everything in it must be accomplished and it is all fulfilled in Jesus. It is still Scripture to us as it points to Jesus Christ. And so you can't read the Old Testament today and simply apply it directly to yourself as if Jesus hasn't come. That would be foolish to do that. We can only read it and apply it with reference to how Jesus came and fulfilled it. So we don't go to uh, the Old Testament to obey the teaching of Moses. We listen to what Moses says that points us to Jesus, and we listen to what Jesus says. This is actually a huge area of theological thought. And I, I felt quite swamped this week to try and make it simple. Um, huge doctorates could be written and are written on this whole topic of how the law relates to the Christian today. But here's one example of why we don't look to the shadow but look to the reality. And it's perhaps the easiest to understand. I mean, there's huge amounts in the Old Testament about the various sacrifices that were to be offered in the tabernacle and then the temple to atone for sin. So that worshippers could approach a holy God. And, and as part of the, uh, the complex of um, rules of ceremonial purity and cleanliness laws, that, that, that you could only approach God in a certain way. You, you could only eat certain foods. Uh, there were other foods you couldn't eat. There were certain forms of dress you could or could not wear. You, 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 you could touch certain things but not touch other things because it would make you ceremonially unclean. And there's, there's huge amounts of that in the book of Leviticus, aren't there? And in the book of Exodus too. The different offerings that, would, that you would uh, bring to come before God. And they vividly were, were conveying to, the, to God's people um, year after year that you cannot just waltz into God's presence anywhere you want. You are unclean. You are spiritually uh, unworthy to come. You can only come in certain particular ways into God's holy presence. You needed to be purified to do that. And in the Old Testament, as you read on, you'll see there's lots of hints that all this sacrifices and temple worship was only temporary, that there was something that, 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 that was more that was coming. And when Christ appeared, 
he declared all foods clean, it says in Mark. So Christians can eat shrimp. You can have good cold shrimp if you want. That's okay. You couldn't do that as an Israelite, but you can now. And he, Jesus ignored the Old Testament cleanliness laws. Uh, he touched lepers. You were never supposed to touch lepers. They were unclean. Jesus touched lepers and touched dead bodies. You weren't supposed to do that. And when he died on a cross, that veil in the temple that separated the holiest place from the rest of the temple, it was torn in two as a visible way to say that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is the ultimate thing, that all of that sacrificial law, all of that cleanliness laws, all that ceremonial stuff was pointing to. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the one who makes us clean by his death upon the cross. The entire book of Hebrews in the New Testament is largely taken up with showing us how uh, the laws were not abolished, but fulfilled in Jesus And whenever we pray in Jesus' name, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, it says in Hebrews chapter 10. It would be so inconsistent with the teaching of the Bible as a whole if we were to continue following the ceremonial laws. It would be to act as if the reality had not come. That's why we don't obey all the laws that we see in the Old Testament. It would be wrong to do so. They, they were there just for a partial period and now the, the, the completed person has come in Jesus. So, so it would be wrong to obey them. It's not like just even an option. It would be stupid to, to obey these rules. It would be foolish to do it. It would be say, we're still waiting. No, we're not. He's come. Now this is a huge area to think through and I've probably said too much already. Uh, but let me, let me pull it back. Why, why should we listen to Jesus and do what he says? Well, Jesus says when it comes to all the revelation of God in the Old Testament, when it comes to scriptures, Jesus fulfills it. Do you get how big this is? Do you see what God has done to reveal himself? He's spoken to Abraham. He's created a, a nation. He's put, he's put laws in place. They were all signposts to point to the ultimate reality of Jesus. All these thousands of years of revelation so that we could see Jesus was the real deal. And we should listen to Jesus because he is the perfect revelation of God. Jesus fulfills all the scriptures. That's why you should do it. So how should Christians relate to the law and the prophets? Well, I've begun to speak about that a bit, but let's think a little bit more about this because that's what verses 19 and 20 are about. Tonight we get the biggest backslapping community in the world uh, doing their thing. It's the biggest night of the year for people in the movie industry, isn't it? It's the Oscars. Uh, And uh, they've determined who is the greatest actor who is the greatest actress who's got the greatest movie who did the greatest special effects and the greatest soundtrack and they're going to put on their best frocks and uh, look glamorous and just pat each other on the back and say you're marvelous you're marvelous and uh, because they've worked out who's the greatest but I, I also love the fact that there's something called the golden raspberries 
the Razzies. There's also the Razzies Award, which is the worst. Uh, the worst movie this year, by and large, apparently was a teenage vampire movie. I'll let you work it out. But it's received about 11 nominations for a Razzie, the Golden Raspberry Award. Well, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, who is the greatest and who is the least? We'll have a look in verse 19. Jesus tells us. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. How should the Christian respond to the law? Well, we should practice and teach the commands of the king who fulfills the scriptures. I think that when Jesus says these commands, he's talking about his own teaching that we're going to read of in the Sermon on the Mount. We've already seen, begun to see in Matthew's Gospel where he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, coming, is, is near. And, you know, come, follow me, and I'll make you disciples of men. And we're going to read the commands of Jesus. And Jesus says, let me tell you what, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's not about who's got the best dress, the most beautiful face, and the, most, the greatest talent. It, it is the one who listens to my teaching, who practices my teaching, and who teaches my teaching to others. That's the, the greatest in the kingdom. Who's the least in the kingdom? The least in the kingdom are the ones that say, oh, you don't have to really listen to what Jesus says. You can ignore what Jesus says. You know, that, that, if that doesn't suit you, just, 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 you know, just move on. That's the least. So who, who is the greatest in the kingdom uh, in this church? I, I don't know the answer to that. But it'll be those who, who are faithfully, day by day, reading his word, hearing what King Jesus has to say, and are putting it into action. I, I'm guessing it's probably some of our Sunday school teachers, don't you think? Who right now are teaching our little ones to, to, to see what Jesus has said and to obey Jesus. Uh, the greatest in the kingdom in our church are probably those who come home from a very long day and still take the time to uh, open up the children's Bible with their children at the end of the day and read the scriptures with them and teach them what it, how it points to Christ and, and pray with them that they would follow Jesus as well. See, it's, at the end of the day, this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, isn't it? the end of Matthew's gospel what does he say and he says this in the great commission go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you this is this is what discipleship is why do we read the old testament and the new testament most Sundays some people have told me they find it a bit challenging sometimes to hear the Old Testament and wonder why on earth we're doing it. We're doing it because it's all God's word to us. We want to see in every way that the Old Testament promises the, the reality of, of Jesus. We want to see Jesus in old and new. 
the gospel in bud, the gospel in full flower. This is the reason that we should listen to Jesus, because Jesus fulfills it all. He's the culmination of God's revelation. And he calls us to live righteously, to practice what he teaches. And he tells us to do it in a way that is totally different to just simply religious rule-keeping. I think as the crowd heard verse 20, they would have gasped. He says we need a surpassing righteousness. Look at verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What is righteousness? Righteousness is is living right, thinking right, doing right, obeying his commands. Now, if we've been to Sunday school, we automatically hear Pharisees and scribes, and we start thinking about the golden raspberries, don't we? Um, But actually, in their day, they were... Um, the commandos of righteousness. They were the SAS of of righteousness. Uh, These were considered like the the guys who were really going for it with regards to righteousness. Uh, The scribes, they knew the scriptures inside out. The Pharisees uh, had basically worked out that there were 248 commands to do and there were 365 things commanded not to do And they wanted to perfectly fulfill the lot. They numbered them down and were scrupulously working out how they could do it. In fact, so desirous they were of... I will finish soon. Whoever's got the alarm. If you want to just switch it off, I've got the point. I've still got about 10 minutes. We're okay. But I'll be be done before that. Um, The... See, I can't... I'm so ear-focused. I can hardly think now. Right. They were so scrupulous about obeying the law of God that they came up with lots of extra other traditions, other things that you could do to really make sure you kept these things. They weren't even in the Bible, but they added these extra traditions. These were the SAS of, of righteousness in their day. And then Jesus says, well, you need to be more righteous than them to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, you can just imagine the shock of it. A stupid illustration. Well, let's say I could um, we'll, we'll put a, a high wire between here and, and, and the back there. Let's say the, uh, the gentleman there has got a great tray of uh, Nigella Lawson chocolate brownies. I love those brownies. Have you had them? One chocolate brownie is, is basically enough uh, calories for a week. They're fantastic. I love, I love those brownies. But, but let's say... Basically, someone said, Paul, if you walk on that high wire, uh, and there, you will get those brownies. I would start crying. <laughs> because I, I had a skiing injury on Monday, and uh, I can, I'm hobbling on this thing. And, and before I was hobbling, I couldn't have done it. And I certainly couldn't do it now. 
And, and it must have felt like that to the disciples, to, to be told you must have a surpassing righteousness greater than the Pharisees and the scribes. Well, we can't do it. You've got to be better than the best. But the truth is they couldn't do it either. They, they tried to reduce God's law to just sort of an outward religious rule-keeping. They found ways to minimize some of the demands just to outward obedience. Uh, they focused on the small stuff and, and Jesus said they left some of the major stuff out. God's law demanded a deeper heart righteousness. And this is what Jesus is calling us to here. He's saying you need a real heart righteousness that surpasses the best of the best. But like me trying to cross to get those brownies, just can't do it. Can't do it. And I think Jesus is driving us to see in verse 20 our complete need for Jesus. I need a new heart. Uh, I've got a heart that Jeremiah says is desperately deceitful and beyond cure. That's what I've got. And I need a new heart that desires righteousness rather than sin. I got Andy to read our Old Testament reading from Ezekiel chapter 36. And in it, God does this wonderful promise that there would be a day coming when God would cleanse his people from their sin and he would give them brand new hearts, spirit-filled hearts that would desire to obey him. And Jeremiah, he prophesied a day when God would write the laws, his laws upon the hearts of his people. And God would bring that about through a new covenant brought about by a righteous king. See, here's the point. As we come into the Sermon on on the Mount, as we see the righteousness that is required of living in the kingdom, um, you've got to see at one level it's impossible. Do you see it? It's impossible to live this way just humanly in our own strength. And it's not just that Jesus came to fulfill the scriptures. He came to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the scriptures. And he came to secure that surpassing righteousness for us. So really there's been two points today. The first point is this. The scriptures, Jesus fulfills it. And secondly, this surpassing righteousness, Jesus secures it. This is where Matthew is going to go in his gospel account. He's going to show us how righteous was the life of Jesus. And then he's going to take us to the night before he was crucified. Let's go to the end of Matthew's gospel. And uh, page 996. On the, the night before he was to be crucified... He takes bread, gives thanks, and he hands it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And then look at verse 27 of chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 27. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He came to show us what righteousness looks like. He came to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. And he came to die a death on the cross that would secure that righteousness for us and would secure all the promises of the new covenant that we would get new hearts that would desire to obey him and please him. New hearts that would desire righteousness. Jesus secures this very righteous kingdom life that he is calling us to walk out. Have you heard the story about the man who became a committed atheist and it transformed his life, helped him overcome his drug addiction and um, turn his life around, stopped him from becoming selfish? Have you heard that story? I haven't. I've never heard it. Never heard it. This is something Jesus alone can do. Mez was telling me about uh, one of the guys who he's been working with in Nidri. And this man finally became a Christian. And he said, okay, well, I need to straighten things up. So he went to the police, office, the police station. They call them officer stations, aren't they? police station there were a number of outstanding arrest orders on him because he'd been a pretty bad boy and he handed himself in and the police were just going what? why, why, why are you giving yourself up? they've been chasing him for quite a while he said well I've become a Christian and I want to do things right that's the heart righteousness that Jesus is talking about that's kingdom living in action. This is the glorious good news. He has come in fulfillment of the scriptures. And he's come to secure the righteousness that we desperately need to be in this kingdom and to live out this kingdom teaching. Let's pray.